Online labor marketplaces are widely used for one-to-one transactions. On Uber, a rider hires a driver for transportation. On TaskRabbit, a homeowner can hire a cleaner to come clean their kitchen. These types of marketplaces are not as widely used for one-to-many transactions, but they can be just as useful. For example, a warehouse owner could want to hire a group of workers to help with holiday shipments. A conference organizer could want to hire a group of event staffers to help run the conference. Wonolo is an on-demand staffing platform. Businesses post jobs and workers apply for those jobs. The types of work include event staffing, warehouse operations, merchandising, and other general labor tasks. In past shows, we have covered on-demand work platforms such as Fiverr, Thumbtack, Uber, and Instacart. Wonolo presents another variation in the business model and software architecture of the gig economy. Jeremy Burton is the CTO and Chief Data Scientist at Wonolo. He joins the show to talk about building and scaling Wonolo and some of the key strategic decisions that Winolo has made along the way. As with any successful marketplace business, Winolo has solved the chicken and egg problem of how to get supply and demand on the market simultaneously. The company has grown deliberately, setting up operations in one city at a time to make sure that they can provide a good experience in both sides of the market in each of the new geographies. Jeremy and I also talked about the broader effects that the gig economy could potentially have on the labor market. Gig economy platforms use a five-star rating system and written reviews to judge workers. This is in contrast to the classic resume system, which people get hired through, and it's slow, it's laborious, you have these strange norms around working 12 to 18 months at a job, or else it looks bad on your resume— The gig economy allows for rapid job liquidity and the potential for workers to steadily level up more quickly than they might be able to in a typical corporate job. These aspects of the gig economy are rarely discussed, and it was enlightening to hear Jeremy's views on them. I really enjoyed this episode. It was a wide-ranging discussion of an interesting gig economy platform that I had not heard about before I found out about it, and it was great to do this episode, talk about the software, talk about the platform, talk about the market. And before we get started, I want to mention that we recently launched a new podcast called Fintech Daily. Fintech Daily is about payments, cryptocurrencies, trading, and the intersection between finance and technology. You can find it on fintechdaily.co or on Apple and Google Podcasts. And we're in very early days with Fintech Daily. We're looking for other hosts who want to participate and host shows. If you're interested in becoming a host and reporting on fintech topics, send us an email, host at fintechdaily.co. We'd love to hear from you. And if you listen to the show, we'd love to get your feedback on the directions you think we should go in, what you would like to hear covered in Fintech Daily. You can always send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. So let's get on with this episode about Winolo with Jeremy Burton. Jeremy Burton, you are the CTO and Chief Data Scientist at Winolo. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Great to be here. Thank you. I want to explore what Winolo is, and then we'll get into engineering. 
the smartphone had a dramatic impact on the way that people work. And the example that people will probably think of first is ride sharing. So with ride sharing, you had a large market that developed almost overnight between drivers and riders. But the other forms of labor, like real-world labor, they have been slower to move onto a digital marketplace format. Why is that? I think there's a combination of reasons. I think many similarities exist between the ride-sharing marketplace and the broader labor marketplace. I think staffing as a whole is a fairly antiquated industry. There's been a lack of investment in technology over the years. It's a very fragmented industry in the same way that limo and taxi service was before Uber and Lyft came along. So I think there are structural problems due to that fragmentation that have made the adaption of smartphone and and next generation platforms slightly difficult. But in my mind, there's no fundamental challenge to adopting smartphones and on-demand platforms within the staffing industry at large. You just have to take a slightly different view. So Winolo, the name Winolo is short for work now locally. So our focus is 100% on real work in a physical location. So we're sending workers to a warehouse or a event site to perform a job. And we're seeing the same dynamics play out in that industry that we have seen in ride-sharing and other on-demand marketplaces. What are some of the canonical difficulties that exist across all these different digital labor marketplaces, whether we're talking about Winolo or we're talking about Uber or we're talking about Thumbtack? What are the consistent issues that these companies encounter when trying to build a marketplace? I think there are issues relating to any marketplace that are definitely not unique to Winolo. One of them is simply the chicken and egg problem of managing supply and demand. So in any location where we launch, we have to find the anchor customers. We have to find a base level of able Winoloers who are willing to accept jobs. And sometimes in an early market, it's hard to synchronize those two things so they so they line up and people are able to find work and people who want work done are able to find workers. I think that chicken and egg problem exists as a canonical problem, as you put it, in, in Wanolo and in any gig economy business or any marketplace business. I think the, the other thing that exists uh, across many of these businesses is the issue of scale. How do you continue to roll out additional geographies? How do you develop a consistent way of doing that while still understanding and recognizing the unique attributes of a particular market. And I'll give you an example. I think we're based in San Francisco. I think for the US market as a whole, San Francisco actually has some fairly decent public transportation infrastructure, which enables workers to get to jobs. But there are other cities where we've launched in the US where public transportation is not nearly as developed. And we have to think very carefully about how are workers going to actually get to their jobs? So we look at the density of the worker population. We look at the density of the customer population. And we look at how do we connect those two so that people can work effectively, show up on time, get paid. When you identify a city that you want to launch in, and you're looking at the different facets of that city, like the public transportation system and perhaps the different sides of the marketplace as you can derive them from uh, available data. 
what's the process of creating a strategy around balancing supply and demand when you're when you're going to tackle that chicken and egg because you have to tackle the chicken and egg problem almost freshly from start in each of these cities i'm sure it gets a little bit easier in some ways in each subsequent city but it probably also gets harder because there's some reason why you started with the earlier cities, you know, like San Francisco, there's probably some low hanging fruit for some reasons why, you know, balancing supply and demand in a staffing marketplace is easier in those and it gets harder in others. So what's the process for strategizing about a particular new geo that you're going to attack? Or I shouldn't say attack, set up in. So you're absolutely right. Each market is unique, but as we continue to scale, we are developing something of a playbook to launch market by market. I think as a macro issue, one of the things to first of all understand is the level of unemployment, but the level of underemployment. And I think this is something that's often missed in the broader discussion of the health of the economy. Unemployment is at historical lows, but there are still many people who are underemployed in the sense that they don't get enough work hours to make ends meet. So one of the first things we're looking at is what are the demographics in the market in terms of that underemployment? And are we going to be able to have an impact? Are there employers in that region, in that location that are having trouble filling work while at the same time there are people who are looking for work? Over that, we lay other issues to do with availability of transportation, which we talked about earlier, you may have a situation where you have underemployment in the worker population, you have a lack of ability to fill jobs on the company side, but there's no meaningful way to connect those two together because they're too geographically disparate. So we're looking at, you know, where do Winoloas live? Where do comp- where are companies based? What is a level of underemployment? What is a level of employment? How do we connect those two together? How do we find those workers? How do we onboard them at scale? So there's a huge number of different aspects that come into operationally launching in a particular market. I heard about Winolo fairly recently when I saw that you had raised a sizable round from Sequoia. And when I saw it, I, I was like, oh, this is a this is obviously a great business. The idea of connecting event staffing with, for example, a large marketplace of people who need event staffing jobs and or the same for uh, warehousing. These use cases where you need a large mass of people all at once, perhaps for a particular event, or maybe it's Black Friday, you need a bunch of people in your warehouse to help you with work overflow. Now, I'm curious, why did it take a longer time for this kind of marketplace to to show up when we saw these things like TaskRabbit and Thumbtack, and that's on the on the real world labor side, and then you saw Fiverr and Upwork and all of these other digital online work economy things. Why did it take a while for something like Winolo to exist? I think that historically the staffing industry has underinvested in technology and hasn't really kept pace with the developments that have taken place in in other industries. If you think about how traditional staffing works, it's a huge industry. It's 60, $100 billion, depending on how you break it out. But most of it is driven by in-person, small staffing operations 
there are often offices in many strip malls in across the United States. And the process of working for a staffing agency as a an individual is you'd walk into a staffing agency, you'd probably sit in the front room, fill out forms for 30 minutes on paper, on a clipboard, go into the back room, someone there would type in that same information that you'd filled out on the forms into a very antiquated system based on, say, Windows 95 or some other old system. And then they would say, well, thanks very much for coming in. We'll call you when we have a job. And then when, in fact, they, they get a job posting, they would pick up the phone, they would go down their call list, they'd call a bunch of individuals until they find someone who's available. And then on the day of the job, they have to call people to make sure they're going to show up. So it's a very people-heavy business. And I think it's a, a business also that has been neglected by Silicon Valley because it's not necessarily visible in the same way that other parts of the economy are to Sand Hill Road and traditional VC investors. So we kind of looked at that whole problem and we realized that there's a fundamental need here to make work more flexible, both for the workers and for the businesses. How do you build a, a work calendar around your other responsibilities. Maybe you have childcare responsibilities. Maybe you have another passion in life you need to work around. And then on the business side, how do you find work flexibly? How do you find workers on demand based on your needs that might occur at very short notice? So there's really a structural problem in a very large industry that just hasn't been solved. But obviously in other industries, the on-demand gig economy has really transformed them so I think it's a question of awareness of this problem. I think it's a question of Silicon Valley and maybe kind of lack of visibility of frontline workers, the people that deliver pizza, the people that set up your event, the people that pick, pack and ship your orders, just generally not visible to the Silicon Valley community. We'll get into the engineering shortly, but just to add a little bit more clarity to the problem, the top level problem of offering a marketplace that increases liquidity between the market of people looking for staffing jobs and the people who might need warehousing or merchandising or event staff or you know the different tasks that you might need a large volume of of on-demand staff workers for so there are all these different tasks there are the warehouse operations the event staffing the merchandising are these tasks all roughly the same from your point of view when you're building a marketplace because I, I remember when I was learning about uh, TaskRabbit a long time ago, or maybe, maybe four or five years ago, one of the issues they had was they expanded too quickly into a wide variety of different tasks that people could potentially do on the platform. And they found that doing customer service and trying to build a market for all of these different verticals was really tricky. But I can imagine maybe in staffing it's easier or you have more of a commodity, more similar businesses across these different verticals. Is it the same across these different things like warehouse operations and event staffing, or do you have to do different things for different verticals? So the way we break down the kinds of jobs that exist out there is, first of all, we look at what we call uniform output versus subjective output. So to give you a concrete example, if you want to find someone who's going to pick, pack, and ship orders in your warehouse, you would hope that within reason, different individuals with a little bit of basic training will do that job more or less the same. At the other end of the scale, if you're in the business of finding someone to build a new website for you, different candidates to do that would create very different outputs. 
and you would want to be more selective about um, who you're going to choose to do that job. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the job is skilled versus unskilled or blue collar versus white collar. It's really about the uniformity of the output. So to give you an example, a nurse is highly skilled. They have to be licensed and trained, but their output is uniform in the sense that any nurse given a similar uh, situation is likely to provide patient care in the same way. So we really try and focus on that uniformity of output. And those are the kinds of positions that lend themselves to automated matching that our platform does, just-in-time matching. And in that sense, they are similar across all these different industries. Obviously, the qualifications that people need for these different kinds of positions across these different verticals, they're different, but we have a mechanism to match on those standardized experiences and qualifications. So where Wanolo really excels is anywhere where that, that output is uniform, whether you view that as skilled or unskilled. Okay, let's get into the technology stack. Give me an overview of the technology stack at Winolo. So I was actually struck by the similarity between Winolo and Airbnb. I listened to the episode that you did recently with one of the directors of engineering at Airbnb. It's remarkably similar. So we started with a Rails version 4 monolithic application. We have two mobile applications, one for iOS, one for Android built natively that talk to that Rails version 4 backend through an API. We have Postgres as our database. On the data science side, we use Python and, and scikit-learn and a few other uh, machine learning libraries. And as we've developed and grown, we've had to really segment out the different aspects of our platform. So the big transition that's happening now within Winolo is we're taking all the web functionality that is currently part of that Rails monolith application, and we're breaking out that web functionality as a separate stack using React and Redux. And that's giving us a lot more flexibility in terms of separating the effort to develop the true backend and all the business rules and all the optimizations around data from the, the front-end web development side of things. What have been your biggest challenges in making that refactoring go expeditiously or um, just go harmoniously with your with the fast growth I, I'm sure you're having? Yeah, so it's always a challenge because you are trying to move quickly and whenever a new feature request comes in, it's slower uh, initially to implement that in React versus just making a modification to the existing web functionality that's part of the Rails stack. So you really have to have a commitment to making that transition and, and buy in to that transition at the, the product, engineering management, business operations, you know, across the entire organization that this is a transition where there is going to be an initial upfront investment, but that will pay off over time in terms of quality of user experience, ability to maintain the code base. So I think it's really just a question of education for the rest of the organization to ensure they understand the, the value of that, that refactoring. Let's go through a couple different flows. So what happens when a requester posts a job? So for example, if I have a warehouse business, I'm selling t-shirts for Software Engineering Daily, and I run a big warehouse that's full of t-shirts, I need people to 
come in and staff during Black Friday when people are have, are buying tons of software engineering daily t-shirts. What's my flow for posting a job to come in and work on Black Friday? So we really divide the job posting into four main sections. So there's the what do you want done? There's the where do you want it done? There's the when do you want it done? And then there's the how much are you paying? So the flow as a requester on our platform is divided into those steps. So you will first of all uh, choose a category of work. You'll describe the kind of work you want done in the job description. You'll say how many people you want. Maybe you want 20 or 30 people to fill this shift. Often you'll be populating that from a template that's been either created by us or previously created by the customer. You'll talk about what is expected in terms of requirements for the job that workers on the platform have to agree to do. You'll talk about where the job is happening. So obviously that's an address and we geocode that and use that to manage check-in and check-out. You'll talk about when. So you can post a job for a single day or you can post a job for multiple days, which is very much like posting a recurring calendar entry in, say, Google Calendar. And then you'll post the pay. And we have a, a feature inside the platform called Phil Advisor, what that does is it uses machine learning to predict how likely it is that you will fill your job based on the pay and a bunch of other attributes that is trained on our experience of similar jobs. So that gives you a, a simple red, green, yellow view of whether you're likely to fill this job based on what you're paying and the, the other terms of the job. And then you would hit post on that job. And then what happens then is we are looking at the entire worker population that we have on the platform. We will exclude anyone who is not able to take that job. So the main reasons that that would happen is they have a job already on the platform that overlaps. Maybe they don't meet the requirements of the job in terms of the qualifications and a few other factors that may mean they're not eligible. And then we take that list and then we use a ranking formula to build a list of best matches to least good matches on the platform and area like San Francisco where we have a high density of workers we might have say 10,000 12,000 workers who we are able to match to that job so we build that list using that ranking formula from best match to worst match and then we send push notifications to each person on that list in that ranked order until the job is filled and the speed at which we do that is dependent on a bunch of factors, including how much lead time do we have till the start of the job, how much density of workers do we have, and a few other factors. But ultimately, we're, we're trying to balance how quickly we can fill the job with how willing we are to wait for the best worker, the best match to, to fill that job. And the vast majority of jobs on our platform are picked up during that push notification phase over 90% are picked up by workers who receive the push notification. 90%, that's great. That's a great metric. Yeah, fill rate is absolutely the number one or maybe revenue and fill rate are the, the, the two joint number ones that we track in terms of how well we're doing. So, you know, our customer ultimately wants confidence that their job is filled. Um, they want to see that the job is filled quickly and our, our average time to fill a job is four minutes. So from posting the job to getting a job filled, just four minutes, which is very different to traditional staffing. What happens if somebody posts a job and it's not getting sufficient workers applying to it? Can you do anything like, you know, go out to Craigslist or, you know, go on some other platform and try to 
get people to platform dump and come on over to Winolo. How do you handle those kinds of jobs where people are not getting enough workers? I think there's a variety of different situations there. So first of all, we have a fill rate team that's a, a team that's part of, part of the business operations team. And their job is to fill any gap that is not filled by automation. But there is a huge amount of automation in the platform aimed at filling jobs quickly. So as we approach the start time for the job, if the job is not filled, we're going to take various automated actions to re-notify, to send out additional communications to try and get the job filled. We're absolutely able to you know, reach out to individual workers that we want to target. So I think a good heuristic, a way of thinking about this is that you know, of that 90%, 95% is completely automated and there's a final 5% of human touch that really aims just to fill in any you know, hard slots to fill that we, we might have open. Can you use ads for this kind of thing? Like if you have a job where you really need to fill it and you can make some kind of expected value calculation and then make a really aggressive Google AdWords bid to really get some workers on demand, does, does that approach work or do you have to do stuff like actually just emailing people directly and how do you target people in those kinds of situations? It really depends on the lead time. So absolutely we can use ads to drive additional workers to sign up to our platform but often our customer is up against it perhaps they had a surge of orders over the weekend they had a promotion they suddenly don't have enough people in the warehouse to pick pack and ship those orders so they're often dealing with you know perhaps a 12 hour 8 hour 4 hour lead time till the job starts and we generally don't get the response on job boards or ads that makes a meaningful difference to that situation. So that's where our automated tools kick in. We're notifying people. We're using push notifications. We're using text messages um, to really, in real time, try and fill those slots. I've spent some time trying to build a marketplace before. There was a company I I started and uh, it didn't really work out. My experience was that the the quote-unquote core technology of the platform like you know you build a rails app to host this marketplace and you you know you're going to balance supply and demand that stuff's not that hard it's the chicken and egg problem is just pervasive and it never stops and it's all about these skirmishes like short-term tactical warfare and figuring out the automation over the things that are actually not short-term they're long-term chronic issues of your of your marketplace. It seems like really the chicken and egg problem is the main challenge of building a marketplace. Would you agree with that? I think that's true. I think the impact of that changes over time though as the business develops. So I think early on one of the things that the founding team did is we we actually went out and did the jobs ourselves and we still have a a policy here that everyone in the company does a job on Monolo every quarter because we think it's really important that we don't you know sit in our ivory towers that we actually experience these jobs as workers on our platform so you know early on we are very much like scrambling to fill every job we had and there's there's you know a microcosm in a sense of that that happens in every market that we launch in but what has gotten easier as we've grown is we have larger customers who have geographic presence in many different markets so we are lucky enough to have 
often you know, like three or four anchor customers in a new market as we launch, which makes it a lot easier to tackle that that chicken and egg problem. I do think there's an additional layer to the chicken and egg problem, which is not necessarily true in all marketplaces, but probably is true in a lot of them, which is there's a fair amount of seasonality in the business as well. We are right now in you know, our busiest time of the year in Q4. Many of our customers are in e-commerce, fulfillment. They're ramping up very, very quickly for the holiday season. So there's that seasonality that also impacts that chicken and egg problem as well. So I would agree with you that chicken and egg is a, is a huge issue. I think that scale, as you continue to grow and develop, definitely helps mitigate that problem. The aspect of having those flagship customers that can, you know, help you expand to new markets with some, with some big jobs, that sounds like a real tipping point. And once you hit that tipping point, you can really start to start to have a little bit more predictable revenue to the business. I think that's right. That definitely factors into the the modeling that we do. It definitely helps to have customers that are known names in terms of the appeal to the worker population. So I agree 100%. When you build all this internal automation for not exactly edge cases, but the kind of thing where you want to automatically post, repost a job on Craigslist, or you want to automatically send a push notification to somebody because the job is about to close and you don't have enough workers yet, you know, maybe you want to automatically post some Facebook ads because things are getting tight. What kind of infrastructure do you put in place to do that? Because I can imagine you just get to this point where you have a sprawling array of little services that are just kind of running and it's maybe hard to document all these things and it's hard to, you know, whiteboard the entire workflow of all the tiny little services that are running. Do you have any best practices for preventing that kind of sprawl? I do. I think one of the things that paid off really well for us is investing in two things early. So one is really investing in data science early on. And what our data science team is able to do is look at the data that we have already collected in the platform and look at you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 dimensions and really drill down into which of those dimensions are most predictive of the outcome that we want. So to give a concrete example there, one of the first problems that we tackled was how do we prevent bad outcomes? So one of the most damaging outcomes is you're a business, you're maybe new to our platform, uh, you post a job, someone picks it up, but they don't show up. We call that a no-show. And we have a a no-show rate that is pretty low already. It's much lower than the sort of traditional staffing no-show rate, but it has such a damaging impact on the on the customer relationship that we really wanted to try and mitigate it. So we built a machine learning model that looks at a whole bunch of dimensions of the job, of the worker, you know, of the transportation infrastructure and availability. And we score every single job as it gets picked up uh, in terms of how likely it is that person won't no-show. And clearly, the more we do that, the better we get at prediction. So I think the, the investment in data science early on meant that we weren't blind in terms of which were the drivers of these negative or positive outcomes. The other thing that we did early on is we we built a mechanism into our match and dispatch engine to A-B test different ranking formulae against each other. So ranking formulae have a relatively small impact, but because we're talking about tremendous volume, 
small differences, small improvements in the fill rate for one algorithm versus another have actually, you know, pretty material impacts on our business. So we, I think another best practice is to invest early in that, that A-B testing um, infrastructure, have a consistent way of doing that across different aspects of the product. And that really helps you learn uh, incrementally and, and make sure you're getting better all the time. I love the foresight there. And some, you know, in these gig economy companies, it can take work to, or can take deliberation. You have to be deliberate about injecting foresight into your decision-making process because sometimes when the company's taking off, you really can just put everything into building new features and building adjunct businesses and really just take on all this technical debt, which can really undermine your long-term stickiness as a product. But, you know, in the process of moving more slowly, you may suffer, you may have some other marketplace platform come in and, and eat your lunch. And then to add to that, you know, I've kind of looked, I, I really am fascinated by these gig economy platforms because many times they're, they're subsidized. They like, well, in the case of Uber and Lyft, particularly, you have this battle of subsidies and, you know, the pri- it's hard to know if the price of the rides that we're getting are real or if they are just to drive demand, to drive KPIs at the ride-sharing platforms because the investors in the platforms maybe want to just, you know, sell their current batch of shares and get out. And, you know, you can have this kind of pyramid scheme. I don't know if that's actually the case or not, but, you know, there's a potential for that. The subsidies within a gig economy business can really lead to this crazy just war for for liquidity in the marketplace. So that's all to say, these can be really tricky battles to fight between competitors. Of course, you also have the notion that it's not always winner-take-all. So like Fiverr and Upwork, for example, I use Fiverr and Upwork a lot, and I see the same people on both platforms. So it's not necessarily zero-sum, but on the other hand, if somebody gets a job on Fiverr, then they're not getting that job on Upwork. I say all this to just prompt, how do you think about competition. How do you think about the competition and the market dynamics and where you invest resources to to win co- competitive battles or do you just ignore competition? I think at some level you have to ignore competition in the sense that you can become very distracted by competition. The analogy I normally use is if you're running as fast as you can in one direction and you look over your shoulder and there's no one following you, then you're probably running in the wrong direction. So you need to, you know, look over your shoulder occasionally, but at the same time, you need to spend most of your time looking ahead. And what I mean by that is you really need to focus on if you're making your users and your customers happy, you will outgrow and you will ultimately succeed versus competition. So to drill down a bit in the specifics of Wanolo, there are really two ways of looking at competition for us. So one is there are incumbent staffing agencies. So there are the Adecos and the Randstats and the Manpowers of this world and all the brands that they they use. And those are the companies that we sell against in the sense that when we contact a customer initially, often they have some existing pre-existing staffing relationship and we are selling against them. In that sense, we really offer something that traditional staffing cannot offer. We have a an on-demand platform. We're able to fill jobs in four minutes on average, we're able to satisfy their last minute need and provide them with a platform that is really easy to manage. If you look at other startups that are in our space, they are obviously 
also very small compared to the staffing industry as a whole. I think some of the other startups in our industry have fallen into the trap of operating much more like traditional staffing agencies. So they've built regional offices, they've hired a bunch of people to run processes that could be automated. And I think one of the things that we so far have, have done well is to invest early in automation that allows us to scale our business without having to invest a lot in additional headcount within the business. What's the roadmap for expansion? Do you want to move into additional cities? Do you want to move into additional workplace verticals like white collar work? How do you think about product expansion? So there's really three axes on which we are expanding and are likely to continue to expand. So one is definitely geographic. We will continue to launch new metro markets. There are many, many opportunities that are untapped. There are many cities in the United States that have really strong transportation transportation infrastructure that have distribution hubs for e-commerce businesses. So you're going to see us continue to roll out market by market. The second axis on which we're continuing to grow is skills. So Early on, when we started Winolo, we very deliberately needed liquidity. So we needed any of the workers on our platform to be able to do any of the jobs on our platform. And that forces you to focus on entry-level work. As we continue to scale, we're able to build additional skills and competences into the platform so that workers who have particular domain expertise, particular skills, particular certification, qualification can find jobs on our platform. And then the third axis is is the vertical expansion. So there are two industries where we're starting to make significant inroads. One is insurance. Uh, so we have four very well-known insurance companies that use Winolo to match and dispatch uh, benefit cancelers and loss adjusters. Uh, and then healthcare. So we took strategic investment from AMN Healthcare, which is the biggest staffing company in healthcare in the US, and Winolo is increasingly being used to match and dispatch nurses and other clinicians across the United States. And we may expand into a few more verticals, but those are the verticals we operate in currently. The idea of identifying workers who do a really good job and then upskilling them or offering them premium jobs, that is so interesting. And I find it it makes me really optimistic about some of these gig economy marketplaces. One experience I've been having recently, so I'm, I'm actually in the process of writing an album where I'm I'm finding vocalists on gig economy platforms. So one is, uh, you know, Fiverr. You, you find all these singers, uh, you find rappers, you find musicians, guitarists, and it's really interesting engaging with them and paying them for their services, and. I've just realized that the market is totally inefficient. There are people who charge $7 for a beautiful three-minute vocal, and there's people who charge $140 for kind of mediocre vocals. And you can imagine the gig economy platforms helping these people to sort of, you know, guide them and say, hey, you know, you're, you're actually, your satisfaction rate from your customers is really high. Maybe you should raise your prices or maybe you should buy a new microphone or maybe you should, um, you know, go to our Fiverr, Fiverr Pro services and, and kind of upskill. So it, it, it makes me optimistic. I think that's right. I think there's two sides to that. 
I think on one hand, staffing traditionally has had very limited transparency. And I think that manifests itself in, in two ways. So first of all, there's been no price transparency. So if you go to a traditional staffing agency and ask for a particular kind of work to be done, they'll quote you a rate that includes their take on top of what the worker gets paid. So they may say it's $20 an hour, and you have no idea whether the worker gets $10 an hour or $5 an hour or $15 an hour. We really believe in transparency. So whenever a job is posted on our platform, you see what the worker gets, you see what our fee is, you see what the other charges are on the platform. And I think that transparency really helps everyone, both the workers and the the companies, understand the true value of the of the labor that's that's happening. I think also there's there's no uh, traditionally been no feedback loop within the staffing industry, so there's no motivation for you as a, a frontline worker to do a great job because everything's very transactional. Each job exists in isolation, and by adding some of these gig economy mechanisms that you talked about in terms of ratings and feedback, you actually now have a feedback mechanism on both sides. So every on Wanolo, every job done. It gets rated by the worker who's rating how they were treated by the customer and it gets rated by the customer in terms of the the job that the worker did. And that brings a lot more transparency and accountability. And I think the last thing I would say is traditionally working in as a temp in a temp staffing position, I would argue it's it's been almost a badge of shame. And I think there's an opportunity to make that more of a badge of honor and to offer workers who traditionally have been underserved a sense of upward progression on a platform. So as you work, as you do a good job, as you get these great ratings, as you learn more and develop skills, you have a path forward. That means you earn more money, you have access to better jobs, you continue to develop rather than just working paycheck to paycheck, just treading water, getting nowhere in traditional temp staffing. Completely agree. I think the idea of the resume as the guiding light to how well this person has performed in past jobs, there's so much that's broken about it. Because if you do a reference check on somebody, there's almost no incentive for that person to give you a negative review of the person. You know, they can get in trouble and, uh, and you know, they can, they can if it makes it back to that employee, that maybe that employee is, is uh, vindictive. And, and uh, it's just always safer to say, yeah, of course, this person did a great job. In contrast... If you have something like a star system, I mean, it's very easy to, for people to be cynical about a star system. Like, oh, you're just going to reduce the worth of somebody to, you know, stars or, you know, very short comment ratings. But in some sense, you can anonymize those. You can, you know, it's, it's much more quantifiable. There's a lot of benefits to those well-defined rating systems. I think that's right. We have the star rating system that most gig economy companies have. And I think that that has value. It creates a feedback loop that wasn't there previously. But we have a lot more feedback, a lot more richness around how workers evaluate companies and how companies evaluate workers. And I think the other point is within the population of, call them gig economy workers or contingent workers, they're generally not the kind of people that are on LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn is focused on professionals and, and white collar. So we also provide a worker profile for every Winola on our platform that gets populated through the actions they take, the work they do, the experiences they gain. So it's not just about star ratings. It's about being able to highlight 
each worker's experience in different categories of work, the positive comments that they've received, and is all part of giving them this upward trajectory on the platform that's beyond just individual job by job. Okay. I know we talked a little bit more about your platform than the engineering, but I'm just so fascinated by the marketplace dynamics. So I guess one other question about engineering, have there been any particularly difficult engineering challenges or management challenges or data science challenges that you can highlight for us that have been, that have stood out to you as unique in your career? Yes, I think I will pick an example from the data science sphere. So when a Wanolua picks up a job on the platform, the customer sees that Wanolua appear in their list and they don't have a huge amount to go on at first touch. They see a picture, a profile picture of the Wanolua and they see the Wanolua's name. They can click into the Wanolua's name and see that Wanolua's full profile. But we were really interested to look at any kind of bias that existed on the Wanolo platform. So we actually worked with a team of people at the Haas School at Berkeley, a professor there and some PhD students to look at how could we first of all detect bias, but it's all well and good to detect bias, but it's also you know, even more important to work out how to mitigate bias that might exist on the platform. So we, to cut a very long story short, we ended up providing a, a very large data set of profile pictures. We provided a matching data set of outcomes on the platform. And we were ultimately able to train a neural network to identify which attributes of a profile picture were associated with certain impressions of that profile picture. So was that person, did they look reliable? Did they look professional? Did they look hostile? Did they look argumentative? And then we were able to train an algorithm to recognize those aspects from just a profile picture. And ultimately, that is getting surfaced as a feature in our platform that when a worker takes a picture of themselves to build out their profile, we can provide real-time feedback to guide them in terms of how to improve their profile picture so that they look more professional, so that they look more trustworthy, so that they are better received on the platform and therefore are more likely to get more work. So that was a, a really interesting uh, data science experience that you know had both an interesting academic element to it for the team at Berkeley, but also a very definite business impact for us in terms of the metrics that, that we use to measure success. Now, we've touched on a lot of different areas here. And you mentioned something earlier, these two conflicting stories about the U.S. labor market. So on the one hand, you have the market that's on a bull run, and you have the quote-unquote official unemployment rate at 10-year lows. But on the other hand, the official unemployment rate doesn't count people who have stopped looking for jobs. Uh, and these numbers can be toyed with. Just to close off, you get a lot of data from looking at how your gig economy, Winolo, is may perhaps be a projection or a, a significant sample size of the way that the overall labor market is operating. So I guess just to, to close us off, do you have any interesting conclusions or predictions or things I might not hear elsewhere about how you think the gig economy is going to affect the labor market in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I think one of the things that we see 
is that there are side effects of regulations and law that are maybe not anticipated. So I'm not going to touch on the politics of it, but one of the results of the Affordable Care Act is that there are employers who will not give workers more than 29 hours a week because they don't want to pay them benefits. And however you feel about that, that's a reality for millions of people who you know, have maybe a, a, a job, but they can't survive on the pay that comes from just 29 hours of work a week. So they need to have multiple jobs. They probably need to get to about 50 hours a week in order to make ends meet. So if you accept that that structural problem exists, you have a huge number of workers who have to work multiple jobs, maybe two or three jobs. And that becomes a a big coordination problem, both for the individual workers and for the businesses, because there's fundamentally a scheduling problem. How do you as a worker work around your schedule and the different jobs you have to have to make ends meet? And how do companies work around that um, problem in terms of finding labor consistently when they know that you know, any individual that they have working for them is working in multiple different places. So there's a need for coordination and flexibility in the labor pool. And I think that it's really, I'm obviously a techno optimist, but there's really technology that can solve that problem, especially as you see the the fact that smartphones are becoming ubiquitous and all of these gig economy platforms are making people much more comfortable with the concept. I think the reality of the labor marketplace is really around flexibility and enabling to people people to work, you know, when they want, for who they want, around a schedule that works for them. Okay. Jeremy Burton, it's been really great having you on the show. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. It's been uh, great to speak with you today. Wow. 